welcome to the Austin Forum Upload, where we explore pervasive and emerging technologies and their influence and impact on society. In this series, we upload direct to you information, opinions, and insights from thought leaders, experts, and creatives from Austin and beyond. They'll share their perspectives through conversations, interviews, debates, discussion, and more. I'm Jay. I'm John. And I'm Huli. And we co-produce the upload for the Austin Forum on Technology and Society. Welcome to the Austin Forum Upload Podcast. We're here today with Carrie Rupp, General Partner at True Wealth Ventures, an early-stage venture capital fund investing in women-led businesses in consumer health and sustainable products and technologies. Carrie wears a lot of hats. She is also on the i National Faculty for the National Science Foundation. She's an active mentor at Capital Factory and a judge and coach for startup competitions. She even has time to have her own consulting business, Disrupt, which helps consult businesses on innovation and strategy questions. Carrie, thank you for being here with us today. We're thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with kind of a softball question, and that is when you think of innovation with your lens as an investor, what do you think of innovation? A lot of people think, oh, technology is innovation. If it's got a chip, if a soccer ball has a chip in it, that's an innovative soccer ball. But it's got to be more than that. What does it mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I would say it's really important to think about the perspective that I do bring because as an investor, I'm really looking for business opportunities that can make money based on technology. And the only way that happens is, is if there's a customer who that actually cr- provides value for, and generally it needs to be really high value. So it's either a very big pain that that customer has right. that the I- innovation or technology can solve for, or it's a great gain that they can get to so something they didn't know they wanted or, or entertainment kind of value, et cetera. Um, but it has to be really important to them because that means there's got to be someone who's going to be willing to pay for it. And so a lot of times um, we get scientists or researchers who come up with something that's flashier or faster or green instead of blue or whatever that uh, quality is, and they don't respect how important it is that someone actually cares about color or they care about speed. In fact, a lot of times there are technologies that are faster, but there's some other bottleneck in whatever process that the technology is going to be used in, and it doesn't matter that it's faster because they can't get the end product any faster, and therefore it doesn't matter. So I look at the perspective, not only does the technology new and different, um, and it can even be disruptive, but if if there isn't someone for whom that solves a great pain or provides a great value, then there isn't an actual um, business opportunity there. And so that innovation isn't as relevant to me as a venture capitalist. Well, let me dig down into that a second. Something that Austin is dealing with right now, San Francisco, Seattle, a lot of cities are being uh, deluged at the time that we're recording this with scooters and dockless bikes. And that's being called innovation. I'm not sure if it's because it doesn't have a bike rack. I'm not sure what the innovation part of that is. When you look at it as an investor and, and these companies are popping up like popcorn, What's the real pain that's being assuaged or what's the actual gain that people are experiencing? Well, you're almost like like teeing up this um, answer. But of course, you know, the Henry Ford quote, which is if you'd asked, you know, his customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster Faster horse, horse. right? Mm -hmm. They didn't know they needed a car. And so what they really needed was to get somewhere. They needed transportation, right? And so there's like yet another scenario. This is about sort of flexibility and on-demand transportation and whether it's Ubers and Lyfts, or it's driverless cars, or it's scooters, or it's bikes, or whatever, I think you really got to think about what problem you're solving for these 
customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I think you're solving a novelty <laughs> problem. I see a lot of people that are doing it for fun. And the question is, how do you actually make this into something that's really solving an ongoing pain? Um, and think about the other constituents in the ecosystem. So mm-hmm. as a downtown dweller, while I get you know, got so I happened to be in LA at Christmas time when the birds were popular there. So I got yes. an early test of them and had so much fun and sort of immediately realized, first of all, you need a helmet. Uh, <laughs> my brain is important safety, to my job, probably first. to most people's. And mm-hmm. uh, I would like to not smash it on the concrete, which looks pretty likely, um, especially since these are you know unexpected. But really thinking about the ecosystem which you dwell. So when I walk out in the morning now of my condo downtown, there are literally like a plethora of colors of bikes and scooters, etc. And you know, littered, frankly, sometimes all over the place. And so mm-hmm. how do they fit into the ecosystem? What problem are they solving for, you know, downtown dwellers, you know, um, people who are trying to get to meetings, uh, people who are in from out of town for bachelor parties who are walking around with, you know, alcohol in their system, all these players. Mm-hmm. And what problem are they really solving and for whom? And is it really a must-have pain? Um, what's interesting, I think it has opened up people who realize that there's alternatives to transportation. So I know people who have actually gotten their own scooters now that they realize oh. that the scooter concept makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But they don't necessarily want to be opting into dollar a minute or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the fees mm-hmm. are, et cetera. So, you know, I think it like anything else, is in the early stages of iterating and figuring out the right business model. Certainly right now there's uh, too many players to be sustainable in the space, so we'll see how it plays out. Well, yes, and they all have fresh, bright colors, so yes, at least you can, you can tell bright. them apart from their competitors. Uh, as I think about innovation and, and I look at all the things that you've accomplished, I've got a question, and I'm looking at I was in a meeting this morning, and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, that I looked around the table and everyone there was a woman. And we were having a conversation about technology and the tech ecosystem in Austin. And yet, that's that's progress. And yet, it's not enough. There's still not enough money going into women-owned businesses. And as you look at your investment choices, and uh, look for women-led businesses. Can you speak to any causes that you see that that explain why there are fewer women-led businesses? Or is it your experience that there's 50-50, the same number of men and women-owned businesses, but the women's uh, women-led businesses aren't as strong. Yeah, so there's a lot of questions in there. Um, I, it's very hard to know how many women-led businesses are out there because the denominator often doesn't get counted, right? So we actually did. So for those people who don't know, somewhere between two and three percent of venture capital dollars go to companies with a woman CEO uh, nationwide. Um, and so we did an analysis like two years ago. Um, my business partner Sarah and I, in conjunction with Jan Ryan from Women at Austin, to say, well, does Austin have a similar profile? And so we used PitchBook and um, some other data sources to try to pull together like how many funded companies here were women-led divided by the denominator. Well, the denominator is really hard to count because the companies mm-hmm. who fail don't end up in a database necessarily. Um, but we found that it was almost you know precisely the exact same number, which is pretty interesting. Fascinating. Um, and so, um, but we also know that there are lots of companies that aren't getting funded. So the data... Um, you know, shows that when there is a women investor, for example, there's a study by, I think, the Harvard Business Review, that if there's a woman investor at a venture capital fund, that venture capital fund is twice as likely to invest in a company with a woman founder and three times as likely to invest in a company with a woman CEO. And yet when you look at the landscape of who are venture capitalists, um, 
somewhere in the single digits of venture capital partners are women. So it's like 90-something percent are men. But if you strip out operating partners, general counsel, and other roles and really only look at who are making investment decisions, it's estimated to be about 1% of venture capitalists are women. 1%. Which is highly correlated to the 1% of venture capitalists are women. 2 to 3% of you know dollars are going to women. And yet, if there were more women, 2 to 3x of the companies would get funded. Um, so, you know, like, like I said, well, the causation is really hard, obviously, right? Of so that course. correlation is pretty interesting. Um, so we think one of the issues is there's some sort of bias that's being, you know, exhibited by the male investors. Some of it is the network. Some of it is literally intentional um, pattern matching. So VCs have to use some tools to make their jobs easier and faster and how to go through deals. And it's very easy to say, I'm going to fund people that I've worked with before that were successful previously. And therefore, if they've been mostly funding males to date, that just by definition is going to mean they're going to fund those same males again. Um, so there's all these sort of factors that are playing in. Uh, interestingly, we as a venture capital fund, you know, we have a proactive focus on women-led companies, which we can talk about why. That's an investment thesis for us. We believe we will actually make more money as a venture fund by focusing on women in markets where women are also the, the customers. Um, but when we started doing this, we also realized um, because of the focus areas that we're focused on, which are sustainable um, technologies and, you know, healthy technologies for human health, that women tend to start businesses in areas that have more of an impact. Um, and so therefore, we're going to see more businesses in those sectors. And since we started our fund, so we did the first close on our fund um, about two years ago now, we've seen like 1,100 deals and something like 70% of them actually do fit into those um areas of human and environmental health. And so it's very sort of self-sustaining that we're going to mm -hmm. actually, you know, find more companies in those sectors. But there are plenty of deals out there. Um, I think they don't have access to the same networks. They're getting screened out um, for both, you know, explicit and implicit bias reasons. Um, and so there's a lot of contributing factors, and it's really hard to pull out a single what's the causal factor. Um, but there's a lot of sort of reinforcing, you know, challenges. Well, that's fascinating, though, because if you were just to look at the numbers and you're you're saying that the that women are attracted or, or choose to start up businesses in particular sectors, they're doing well. Your company is doing well. You're seeing healthy returns on investment from choosing this particular. Well, where we expect to. Well, well I would hope so. Long term. Yeah, I would <laughs> hope so. But. Why, why isn't everyone else doing it? This mm -hmm. is clearly working for you. This is a winning strategy as an investor. So, yeah, well, you know, so that's the challenge. I think to some extent it is a, a cultural thing that, that the U.S. culture, at least, and probably, you know, first world culture is dealing with. If you, there's a study that MIT, HBS, and um, Wharton did several years ago where they took the exact same business plan and had it presented by attractive male, unattractive male, attractive female, unattractive female, um, and then looked at who, you know, funded this theoretical company. And not only does the attractive male get the most investment, um, the attractive female gets the least. So there's actually a penalty for the attractive female. Um, but it's not only male investors who act. So that's like shock number one. Shock number two is that female investors act exactly the same way as male investors. So this isn't men discriminating against women. It's culture discriminating against women. So it's, it's a societal it's issue. It's a societal right? issue. Um, and um, there have been a number of other studies recently in Sweden and at TechCrunch Disrupt. And I, I'm not going to remember exactly who did what study. But there are three of them are really all around the way that investors look at, perceive, ask questions of, and interact with startups who are pitching. Um, and so they tend to, for example, take the same 
qualities that you might see in a young, eager entrepreneur. And as a male, they're ambitious with potential. And as a woman, maybe they're pushy and, you know, sort of not inexperienced. Um, and or when they're presenting their business plan, this is, you know, and they've done statistical analysis to say this isn't just, you know, observation. Like this woman at Columbia did a study last year at TechCrunch Disrupt and saw statistically that the women entrepreneurs were asked what were considered prevention-oriented questions, like what keeps you up at night? How are you going to mitigate this risk? I see this hole in the business uh, plan. How are you going to you know, overcome that? Sort of what are all the worst case scenarios? And so, of course, her answers, if she responds directly to those questions, bring the opportunity kind of down. Whereas the men were asked, you know, at large um, promotion-oriented questions like how big can this be and how many other markets could you go into? And, of course, then people start seeing up into the right. Um, and so there's just a number of factors that are just sort of all – you know, culturally happening, people aren't, you know, those investors, if you'd ask them, probably didn't walk into that and go, I'm going to discriminate against those women entrepreneurs today. Um, so some of it's learned. And um, obviously, there are, you know, efforts underway to do implicit bias training and all these other things. But it takes a lot, as we all know, to, you know, create culture, it takes a lot to change culture. And so um, we believe that using different tools and different lenses through which to, you know, look at investments will help. So we, you know, are at the extreme end where we have an explicit focus on businesses that have at least one woman on the executive team. Um, and that's not just because we want to take advantage of the data that shows when there is more gender diversity in leadership teams, companies have been at a better financial performance. So it's a way for us to have better returns. But we're looking at markets where women are also making the primary um, buying decisions. Yes. And therefore, for our thought is we should have at least one woman on the team if the customer is a woman so she can understand that, mm -hmm. bring the perspective mm -hmm. of that woman to the management team's decisions in terms of designing product, you know, going to market, selling to, servicing that customer. And that doesn't sound like rocket science. Like it that doesn't. Sounds, sounds like common sense. Pretty rational. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at the data there, um, only 17% uh, of venture-backed companies have a single woman on the executive team. So it's still clearly, and, and that's better. It was um, 15% a couple of years ago. So the latest data shows, you know, 83% of venture-backed companies don't have a single woman on the team. And if you're in these markets where, you know, 85% of consumer purchases are made by women, 80% of healthcare decisions are made by women, 78% of healthcare workers are women, in those markets, you've got to bring that perspective to the table if you're going to have an – otherwise, you're ending up with the, you know, the classic Chevy Nova getting launched into, you know, Spanish-speaking markets and right, the car means right. doesn't go. Or the pink right? bic for women. Yeah, or, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, what – when you look at this, it's got to strike you the opportunity costs that that are out there that the the products that were missing the the companies that were missing by not having in this case women yeah at the table you know one of the most striking areas so so i mentioned before that we focus on human health and um sustainable consumer and there are areas where women are making buying decisions but we weren't explicitly looking only at women's health. Um, but it's one of the most striking examples of where that's true, that there's just been very little innovation in that sector forever because the, you know, if the majority of the entrepreneurs that are getting funded or the investors who are screening, hey, do I think this is a good idea, are men, they're not necessarily going to understand the is there a must-have pain around menstruation and fertility and menopause and other things that they just don't have experience with. And that's 
makes sense. It's human mm-hmm. nature. Like they're mm-hmm. not going to feel the pain the same way if you came in and told them something that really related to them. Um, but that's why we feel like we need to get more women in the position of being venture capitalists, being angel investors, actually being able to understand the problem, understand the customer, um, and, and you know really be able to be the entrepreneur helping solve the problem, talking to the customer, et cetera. So it's not that we're faulting men for not having understood those problems. It's that we need to actually make sure there are women at the table in these scenarios too. Well, that certainly makes sense. And, and when you go and work with startups as, uh, as a judge or a coach in a startup competition or as a mentor at Capital Factory, is that, does that advice come into play? Do you have the opportunity in those roles to talk to these companies that are just emerging, that are just starting about how to build that into their DNA at the very start. Yeah, I mean, actually, so one of the things that's interesting about um, being asked to be a speaker at a lot of events, partly because as far as Sarah and I can tell, we are literally the only two women VCs in the state of Texas. Um, so there are plenty, there is a great group of women angel investors. Um, there's some women in private equity. There are women on the LP side, so the institutional investors who are investing in venture capital funds. But we don't think there are any other VCs. Uh, and we know that because whenever a panel needs diversity, a VC and they need diversity, it's your phone. Me or Sarah. Yeah. Um, and so in the course of doing that, we realized we get asked to talk a lot at women events, women in tech, women in VC, women entrepreneurship. And it's great because everyone loves what you're saying because you're preaching to the choir, rah, rah, rah. What I think is substantially more important is that we get the message actually out to broader audiences. And so I love when there are guys in the audience, but I love even more when I don't have to just speak to an audience of women because I think it's really important that men actually know the value of having women on the team, not in some ethereal feminist way, but literally as a venture capitalist, like in a financial impact way. So um, just to throw some numbers out there now, since we're on the topic, uh, McKinsey did a study in 2010 called Women Matter. um, And it was looking at their database of companies, which is mostly Fortune 500 publicly traded companies. But they saw that the top quartile of companies with more women in senior leadership saw significantly better financial performance than the rest of the database. And to the tune of 41% higher return on equity, 56% higher EBITDA. Okay, and I think people kind of expect to hear like one or two percent better, like it was better. No, like significant. So if you're a big Fortune 500 company, you might be trying to move the needle one percent on EBITDA, um, and here that here you are being able to move the needle by like fifty six percent. And so uh, similar study by American Express with, with what they call successful small businesses, which are over ten million in revenue, and those with women leaders had fifty percent higher revenue growth. And then the Kauffman Foundation founded a study in the venture-backed space, which is obviously where we care a lot about it. And um, the companies that were women-led in that scenario had like uh, 35% higher returns, I think, 12% um, higher revenue growth, using a third less capital. Um, so they had less money to spend, whether that was because they had lack of access to capital or they were more efficient with that capital, they still had outperformance. Um, and so I think it's important, you know, to speak to the point of, am I getting this message across, to, to get that message out to everybody because it's actually not just good for their teams from a, hey, you're going to understand the customer better. You're going to have, you know, representative kind of cultural representation on your team. You actually should perform better financially. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, potential reasons why that is. 
is, um, you know, and, and we don't know, again, the causal stuff. But um, so there are some journal studies that look at, you know, why do um, women-led companies or companies with more women in senior leadership have these results? And some of it is just literally some of the gender differences around women and our skill sets. Um, that some of them literally linked back to, like, cortisol levels and nesting, you know, the instincts and things like that. So oh my goodness. women tend to be more relationship builders. They tend to have what um, one of these um, scientific studies calls better at reading the mind's eye, i.e. being able to kind of survey the room, read the room. and mm-hmm. see, okay, that person's being quiet. It might just not mean because they just agree with every great thing that I've said, but that they might actually be, you know, stewing inside and, and, and mm-hmm. how might I, you know, sort of take them aside or bring their opinions to the table, et cetera. And in the 24th century, 21st century kind of workplace where a lot of it is remote, et cetera, you know, those interpersonal kind of things can be really uh, important, for become, example. Yeah, they become even more important. Uh, but there are other factors that probably contribute to why some of the, you know, women-led companies don't get the same amount of funding that aren't just about to bias, and there are ways that women tend to present themselves, et cetera, too. So you probably heard the... Um, Feedback around like when women are applying for a job, and I'm not going to get the exact metrics right, but men, uh, women think they have, they look at a job description, and I think they have to have 100% yes. of yes. the criteria, right? They need to have done all the mm-hmm. things in the prerequisites, mm-hmm. and they need to have had all the, the um, experience before and le- before they apply. Mm-hmm. And men feel like they need, and this way, I don't remember what exactly what it is, but maybe it's like 70% or 40%, they're like, eh. I can do that job and they apply. So that same kind of approach goes towards women tend to be much more pragmatic when they're presenting. So we think one of the reasons that they outperform, for example, financially is that they're very uh, pragmatic about what numbers can I really hit and how do I make sure that I, you know, set expectations and over deliver. Um, that works great in an execution kind of mode. But if you're in sales mode, i.e. you're presenting to investors or you're presenting to customers, you need to be able to sell the big picture story. And there's a place for the opportunity potential as opposed to the, you know, I know 100% confident with 100% confidence that I can deliver this number. And so there are some of those factors. So when you speak to when I'm mentoring you know, do, do we get some of that out there? We really do try to help people understand where they might have um, just genetic tendencies or just gender-based tendencies to act a certain way, how to maybe overcome those. And even in the case of the scenario where I said the companies are pitching and they get judged differently, if you get asked that prevention-oriented question, you know, figure out how to turn it around and make it a promotion-oriented answer. Well, the risk is X, but did you know the potential is Y kind of thing. And so, yeah, we try to make sure we get that message out there, whether that's through speaking events or in engagements with, you know, individual entrepreneurs. Well, that's, and that's based on data. Yeah, that's, right. That's, yes. That's, well, we're nerds, that's neutral. So, yeah. It's it's not, uh, there's no value judgment there other yep. than how much money do you want to make? How yep. big do you want your company to grow? <laughs> right. The evidence suggests Yeah, that. and it's, look, all of these things, everything we're talking about with respect to gender is, um, you know, sort of stereotypes at large, et cetera, and each individual entrepreneur may or may not, male or female, exhibit those characteristics. But at large, when you look at the data, those tendencies and those trends are there. So you might as well, you know, sort of take the learnings from that and understand, you know, you know, I'll meet women entrepreneurs who don't want to have to be judged as a women entrepreneur and they don't like that my fund is focused on women. And I'm like, I get it. Wouldn't it be awesome if there were a level playing field? There isn't right now. Um, and so therefore, you know, leverage the tools that are at your disposal. Well, it's really about the the collision between what we talk about at our organization is technology and society. There's there's the hard science, there's the data, there's the numbers, there's the the objective information that really can't be challenged or argued with because it's valid and and it's replicable and then you've got culture on the other side and feelings and and your grandma and 
all those other things that can't be controlled for. So have you found that that to be uh, something that's gotten easier for you to well, I think, compartmentalize over yeah, time? Yeah, well, I think, no, I think what happened is, is that a lot of talk about women in tech, for example, because I've been in tech for, you know, 20 plus years in my career, has been like, it's such a bummer. There aren't any women in the room. Like, this is such a problem. This is such a problem. Like, this is an opportunity, you know? And being able to show actually <laughs> having more women in tech, having more women in leadership in your company actually leads to, you know, better financial performance. As a woman, you have the opportunity to leverage these advantages that you bring to the table, especially in markets where you understand the customer better. And I don't mean like makeup, you know? I, it, sometimes they literally, it, women think it has to be just girly things. These are scientific and technology based companies where women are making these buying decisions and like all healthcare decisions are, all, you know, 80% of them are made by women. So we're talking about science and technology types innovations where women have buying power mm-hmm. as consumers, where they can actually bring really strong perspective to being leaders or technologists in those companies because they understand the customer better. Um, and so I think turning the equation from complaining about the issue of women and the, the gender percentages to figuring out how you leverage that to your advantage, or at least how you mitigate now that there's data around, okay, here's the problem. I'm probably going to get asked biased questions. Great. Now I'm going to train myself on how to mitigate that and actually outperform when I get asked those questions. Well, I'm I'm looking at you and I'm realizing, of course, you've got the understanding of a woman. You are a woman. So you've got kind of an unfair advantage to <laughs> the, the other side to, to bring to the table. But I was looking at your bio and I noticed that you also, you, you didn't start out as a uh, a venture capitalist when you were in high school. You, you went to your undergrad to study biology and you still look at health-related companies. You still bring that intelligence and that experience to evaluating those kind of companies, to being a board member at BrainCheck, to volunteering with the AARP Health Innovation um, issue. What advice might you have if there's someone listening to this podcast who isn't in tech yet but is looking at the world and seeing tech, tech is everywhere. I've I've really got to join this this tidal wave that's coming. What advice might you have as someone who is who is an English major or, or studied French literature or studied architecture, who's wondering if there's a place for them? Yeah, in technology. Yeah. Um. So I when I was in Philly with um, Dreamit, we had a um, organization called Tech Girls, which was focused on getting girls kind of in the junior high age range, um, you know, little sort of late elementary school, junior high, interested in technology or really, frankly, exposed Exposed. to it. Yeah, I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. not like pushing them in a specific direction. Um, And one of the most important factors, and so because I was running Dream It, this accelerator at the time, what I did with them is we created a camp that was a week-long summer camp where they got to work on an idea over the course of the summer. So it was literally started kind of like Startup Weekend where lots of women, girls, (laughs) brought their ideas to um, a session and then the teams all voted on which ones they wanted to take forward. And then over the course of a week, they did customer discovery, built prototypes in conjunction with, you know, developers and designers that could help them do that, went out and got feedback on them, and then put together sort of a business case that they presented to their investors, which were their parents, um, and the media, and, you know, had this whole sort of mini accelerator over the course of the week. And one of the key things that we wanted to make them understand was that being in tech didn't mean that you had to actually be in a technical role. Um, And so they could be marketers, they could be designers, they could be 
customer discovery, like product manager type roles, or they could be building the technology, et cetera. And that tech, when you talk about it as an industry, doesn't mean that you actually have to be the scientist or the technologist, but it means that you're excited about the kinds of things that technology can actually bring to the world and, and the opportunity for the customer. And so that people side of it goes back to how we started this whole conversation about what innovation is interesting. It's innovation that has an impact on a customer that actually brings them value. It's not the fact that it's technology, it's the you know benefit that that technology brings. And so that interface between people and the tech is key and you need that translator. And so that's often a person that's in a role that isn't technical. So I think you absolutely can be an English major um, or you know whatever the other majors were that you mentioned and actually find that you have a lot of value with the skills that you bring and the perspective you bring to a tech company. Well, tech affects everything in society now. There, there's very little that you could point to that hasn't been affected by tech or data collection or an engineer of some sort. And so that's good to know that anybody who's interested in, in influencing that kind of thing, that they can find a home there. They don't just have to know how to code. There are a million other options and ways to get involved. So you've laid out for us an amazing strong business case for bringing women into leadership positions in your company. They are impact-oriented. They are pragmatic. They're not going to oversell. They're going to be responsible about their projections and their and their uh, predictions. Uh, they're going to care about the impact on the human beings that are the actual users of the product. All of these things that are important to producing good work. So really, the only people that need to be interested in attracting women candidates to leadership positions are those who work for companies that want to make money or those who work for companies that want to change the world. Otherwise, <laughs> Right, right, yeah. right. So basically, you've laid out our investment thesis right there. Now, I just need to update our slides. We just have one <laughs> slide now, or maybe two. Well, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are, so it's really meaningful to us that you took some time out of your schedule to spend it with the Austin Forum on Technology. Thanks, it was a fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Austin Forum Upload. You can listen to additional episodes and check out a schedule of our monthly in-person events at austinforum.org. The Upload is a production of the Austin Forum on Technology and Society, a nonprofit organization here in Austin, Texas.